Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Up this week, episode three of our special six-part mini-season on Unsolved Mysteries, volume two. For the third time in our coverage of the series return, we sit down with Robert Wise, the show's executive producer and director of Death Row Fugitive. In 1965, repeat sex offender Lester Eubanks confessed to killing 14-year-old Mary Ellen Diener and was sentenced to death. However, Lester's sentence reverted to life in prison when a 1972 Supreme Court ruling abolished the death penalty. While in prison, he joined a program allowing inmates to leave the grounds. A year later, while on a Christmas shopping trip at a mall, Eubanks escaped. He remains a fugitive nearly 50 years later. The last thing I want is for Lester Eubanks to die a free man. He murdered my sister. The Bible says you take a life, you give your life. To go from death row to the shopping mall and then allow him to escape is unfathomable. I want him caught. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire episode three of volume two of Unsolved Mysteries before listening to this podcast. Now, before my discussion with Bob, here's a conversation I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband, Kevin Flynn. We'll break down the episode and share our reactions to the real-life case behind it. So, Kevin, Mm -hmm. Volume 2, Episode 3 of this season of Unsolved Mysteries is called Death Row Fugitive. Right. And it is a very straightforward, um, like a most wanted type of episode of Unsolved Mysteries where they're looking for an escapee from justice. What do you think of this type of episode generally? Oh, I I think it's great because here's one where I think the audience could really play a key role in um, solving it where it's not so much a theory of like, did he run away mm. or, uh, you know, is he living someplace? So we know this. He ran away. And if he's still out there, somebody knows that. So we should say that there seems to be no doubt that Lester Eubanks committed this crime. Yeah. Some of these cases, you, you know, we like to wonder if did they get the right guy? Mm. And that's sort of like where the mystery comes from. Yeah. There's absolutely, I mean, he confessed, right? Right. And he confessed in such a way that doesn't seem suspect. He knew details of the right. crime. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be in doubt, even from the people who knew him, that he did this. Right, right. And and with uh, with terrible brutality, not only did he shoot Mary Ellen, you know, twice for no reason, but then he came back and hit her with a brick. Yeah. It's important to know this because we have to know that this guy that we're going to be looking for is really dangerous. He's not some fun-loving George Clooney, I just dug my way out of prison right. kind of guy. Um, he's not a romantic figure. He is a very dangerous criminal, and yes. he deserves, I mean, he got sentenced to death. He is certainly somebody who needs to be brought to justice. Well, what's interesting about Lester Eubanks, you know, we should say he was this repeat sexual offender. He shouldn't have mm-hmm. been out when right. he committed this murder of this poor young girl, Mary Ellen. Horrible crime. Uh, we hear in the episode that law enforcement just basically says he shouldn't have been out, but He does end up getting convicted for the crime. He's on death row. And thanks to the Supreme Court, when the death penalty was abolished, 
He ends up becoming a regular inmate, mm-hmm. participates in a program that allows him to shop in a shopping mall. Before we get to that, can we talk about the other extracurricular activities you could do on death row? Sure. Like oil painting? Yes, yes. Funny he actually had a talent for that. But yeah. Well, what's interesting is I actually, you know, I'm very much in favor of prison programming. You yeah. Know, I, I don't think that, you know, even... People who've committed the worst crimes. I think I do think it's cruel and unusual to just like put them in a box and throw away the key. But the idea that somebody who committed a crime like his would be in a program where he'd be unsupervised shopping in a shopping center? Well, it seems like he was playing the long game mm. between uh, trying to build up trust by working in the office and things like that. A little bit Shawshank redemption in that way. It's Shawshank, absolutely. Yeah. It's easy to let your guard down, mm. so to speak, when you know you're around somebody and they seem to be you know very well behaved, but he was very cagey, yeah, I mean, you couldn't live on the run for three or four decades if you weren't cagey, well, he was cagey, but the one expression I hear again and again in this show is that he was, despite being a bad guy, a sexual predator, uh, a known bad guy. Mm-hmm. He was well-liked, and he had a network of friends and relatives who, it seems, were comfortable putting him up, letting him live with them, you know, helping him hide out. Yeah. Um, try to put yourself in the place of, you know, if you have a relative, a cousin, somebody like that. Mm. But I, I think one thing that probably they didn't talk about was, do you want to be the cousin that turned in your other relative who should be on death row? Or are you comfortable being the cousin who put up a murderer in your house? Right. Well, Lester Eubanks escaped in 1973. Fast forward like 20 years later, uh, his case is featured on America's Most Wanted. And they get a tip that there's a woman who used to run around with him. uh, And that according to her, Lester ended up living with his cousin's widow, Kay Mm -hmm. Banks, it's uh, it's sort of a proof of concept. If I ran away from prison hmm. today, I don't really know where I would go. I don't really know how I would sustain myself and feed myself and avoid detection. And so I think a lot of us may think there's no way that one could do that. But here is somebody who did. Right. But there's also the implication that he did have help from the outside before. No one really knows how he escaped from the immediate area, Great Southern Shopping Center. But uh, I don't think he could have done that if this was a spur-of-the-moment decision by him. I think there had to have been planning. I think he had to have made some kind of arrangements in advance. Yeah, that's a really intriguing component of the story was, you know, his ability to walk away and immediately take action and go on the run as if it had been planned. The other thing is really highlighting the difference between then and now, right? If you walked away from prison today, there would be surveillance video, there would be uh, a cross-state line. If I walked away from the mall. Exactly. But but there would be a cross-state line cooperation and the manhunt, there would be technology. And if your escape bus had been pulled over by law enforcement, it it likely wouldn't have been a fruit inspection, right? Well, you never know. That fruit's dangerous if you bring it across. They never explain what illegal fruit was. Yeah. Well, it is illegal to bring fruit across state lines because of insect uh, infestations. State lines? I mean, I definitely, yes, I know. definitely knew, like, like you know, you know you uh, have, you, international borders. Well, you know how, like, when you fly home from Florida, they'll take the oranges out of your suitcase if there's... That happens. That's the, a thing. The man. <laughs> but the technology is... Yeah, I mean, like, how could you get a job in a furniture factory mm. without proper documentation and cash that check and stuff like that? I mean, it, I guess there are ways, but it's that's part of the, 
the case that's so amazing, you could live what sounds like a normal life, mm. but have been one of the top 15 most wanted criminals. Mm. What's really interesting now, uh, fast forward to 30 years after his escape. So this is now 2003. We hear in the episode from Lieutenant Michael Vinson from the Ohio State Highway Patrol. Uh, He decides at this point, uh, because Lester has family members scattered throughout Ohio, to look into Lester Eubanks' father. Right. Uh, Mose. Yes, who was the only close living relative in the area at the time. Now, Vincent says his partner and he knew uh, that Mose, or they thought they knew that he knew exactly where Lester is. So is his father like a collaborator in this escape and, and hiding from justice? I don't think it's surprising that Lester would try to reach out to some relatives. Mm. And he was close to his father and That's not to say that his father was the one who drove the car away from the mall, but he would try to find ways to communicate and, you know, hear his dad, especially when his dad's older. Mm. I mean, I think he'd be motivated to want to keep in touch with him. But Moe's apparently, if he knew something, he wasn't going to say anything. So in 2018, there's this push for Lester to be added to the 15 most wanted list. Mm-hmm. These are supposedly the uncatchable of the uncatchables. Right. And people that law enforcement really see as high priority to nab, right? Mm-hmm. So being on that list has now propelled this case to some sort of greater notoriety. What do you think it does when a seemingly cold, old story like this gets pushed to the forefront? Well, I mean, it's so cold, so old. It's as old as me. I yeah. was born in 1973, by the way, and I just kept thinking that my entire life this man has been on the run. And so it wouldn't be surprising if very few people knew anything about this case and knew that he was out there. It's not like, I mean, we all know D.B. Cooper, mm. but, uh, you know, this is almost as dramatic a, a fugitive case. And so it's good to bring attention to it to a new generation of people especially when there are you know new tools investigative techniques t- technology developing uh genetic uh tracing science there are new ways to find where he may be hmm. it is interesting that they seem to think that the two identifiable things about Lester are this this big scar he has in his yep. arm but also the style of his painting. Yes. That he may be a painter. He may be living somewhere selling his art or doing some artwork and that we may be able to look at the style of painting to identify him. What do you think about that? I think that, first of all, Mamazer is an expert who can determine that. Right. Uh, I'm sure their mother's very proud of them mm. uh, for developing that skill. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I think it's very clever to think that. I mean, sure, could he be, you know, on Sundays at some flea market selling, you know, uh, landscapes and uh, portraits of people? Yeah, he, he definitely he definitely could because even if you change your name and your career and a lot of your habits, there are certain things about your personality that you still want to pursue. You know, whether you're a fan of jazz or uh, baseball, I mean, there are things like that you're not going to necessarily give up. You're going to try to do. Mm. And so painting, yeah, I mean, he probably never thought about the fact that his uh, artistic fingerprint is on that painting. Well, there's a painter out there who's making landscapes and portraits uh, who looks exactly like the age progression image of Lester Eubanks, who's now 75 years old. If that man is out there doing that and he happens to subscribe to Netflix and see this series and sees, oh no, they know my painting style, they know what I look like, 
and they know my entire network of friends and family, I could get caught, right? I mean, I, I all yep. I can imagine yep. when I see an episode like this that's very solvable is that he probably knows that the end is in sight when he sees this episode, right? Yeah, and if if a fugitive gets far too comfortable, uh, you know, they m- may just fade into the background forever. It's when a little bit of heat comes along that they start making moves and hopefully making a mistake. We've seen from volume one of Netflix that all those cases got some new traction. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, folks are, are ready for this manhunt. I think Lester Eubanks is probably going to get caught. What about you? Well, you know, I would like to think it's the most solvable one that we've seen. Hmm. But I don't know. I don't know. It just He's just so good. He is. He's smooth. And he's got those nunchucks. Yeah. I mean, he's, old, he's an old man by now. Yep. So, uh, you know, whether uh, he is discovered before he meets his maker, you know, that, that would be, I think, uh, suitable justice. Let's just hope that for Myrtle and for all of Mary Ellen's family, that it does come to a close. Yeah. Thanks again to Kevin Flynn for joining me. Kevin, you are my favorite person to watch Netflix with. Kevin is an Emmy Award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author, and co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts the podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. Now, here's my interview with Robert Wise. Robert Wise, welcome back to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. It's great to be back. So, Bob, a uh, pretty straightforward first question. Where is Lester Eubanks? Oh, he's in Detroit. <laughs> Third Mystery, Street, I think. Mystery solved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's next? <laughs> I mean, that is the central question here, right? I mean, this is a fugitive that's been on the run for as long as I've been alive, by the way. He uh, escaped in 1973, which is the year I was born. That's all I could think about while watching this is just the length of time that he's apparently been able to just exist in the world. Yeah, it is really quite amazing. He's a very smart guy, very savvy. He spent enough, apparently enough time in prison to really learn the ropes of how to stay undercover. Hmm. And, you know, I think the question is, has he really stayed crime free all this time? You know, the police always say that he probably committed more crimes and probably more sexual crimes, but yet he's not been caught. So has he been able to not only sort of stay out of the police's way, but also, you know, can he just stay out of everybody's way, not getting fingerprinted and all that stuff. It's just, it's remarkable how he's been able to stay away so long. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I kept thinking was, you know, maybe he didn't. I mean, there is a sort of a, a theory in criminology and, and data bears it out that sometimes uh, serial offenders just kind of level off their offending and kind of in their 30s and 40s tend to maybe offend less and less. And one of the things I kept thinking about was, you know, I hope he hasn't been committing crimes, but maybe that's why he hasn't been caught. Maybe he's truly just been living as a painter somewhere, you know, selling his work in a local gallery or at the flea market or whatever. Right. Exactly. Could be. I mean, it is strange to think if he really was, you know, a serial offender who would continue to do it, you would think at some point he would get caught or at least somebody would recognize the scar on his arm, for example, Mm. or something. So it might be, uh, you know, in a sense, what do you and I know? But uh, according to the cops, they think, oh, no, he's definitely offended again. But like you're saying, it could be that he hasn't. It did strike me how many people in this episode described him as having two faces, that he knew how to be very dynamic and friendly and coercive on the one hand. And on the other hand, he could be this terrifying guy. Yeah, exactly. He was very charming. And uh, I mean, I guess that's part of the nature of a sociopath, I suppose. Mm. Right. 
I mean, you think of Ted Bundy and all the rest of it, but uh, apparently he had that ability and he seemed, he came across as a really nice guy. He was a good looking guy and, you know, he's a painter and he had this sort of sensitive part to him. So he seemed like he was able to charm a lot of people. But there seems to be no doubt that he committed this murder, this this killing of Mary Ellen, this incredibly brutal killing yeah. where he, you know, basically went back after shooting her and, and, you know, bludgeoned her to death. And there just is no doubt about that, right? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, he did confess twice. I mean, he confessed to the police in the statement. Then he got on during the trial. He actually got up there and essentially confessed again on, on the witness stand. So I don't think there's any question. In fact, he he tried to do an insanity plea, hmm. I think was the idea. So he definitely did it. Right. Luckily, that's not the issue here. Right. Well, this is the second fugitive story in the return of Unsolved Mysteries, the first being the Xavier, Xavier. Xavier case, yes, in France, episode three from volume one. In a previous conversation I had with Terry Muir, the show co-creator and executive producer, she mentioned that the Xavier case generated more tips than any other cases, which is both interesting and hopeful. You've been on the show since the beginning. I'm wondering if if you know if there's a type of case that the show has been most successful at solving, whether or not fugitive cases are near the top of that list. Fugitives would definitely be at the top of the uh, at the top. I think the highest percentage wise is probably lost loves. Hmm. We did a number of those where people were like separated at birth or they've lost their brother or cousin. Those are generally easier to find because you put the faces out there and a bit of their story and they go, oh my God, that's the guy who lives down the street or that's my you know, adopted brother. So those are probably the percentage-wise the highest. Fugitive stories, in, in a sense, are easy to get tips because again, you're putting out a, a, a face. Normally it's not 40 years later, but uh, it's a face. You know, If anybody knows this person, please contact the police. And at least in the early days, we had 20 million people watching it on NBC. Hmm. So somebody was going to see them. And I think that's why the Xavier case generated so many tips is because, you know, there's a picture, more than one picture of Xavier and say, if you know this guy, let somebody know. Hmm. Of all the variety of mysteries the show is known for doing, unexplained deaths, murders, missing persons, UFOs, ghosts. Mm. Um, As a storyteller, I'm wondering if you have to shift your approach to directing, to writing, to sort of pacing a story when an episode is based on this type of story, a fugitive story. I think so. I mean, every story, at least for me, I ask two questions. I ask, what's the question and why do we care? And Obviously, in any of the fugitive cases, the main question is, you know, where is this guy or gal? But really, the question is, like Xavier, the the question is not only where is he, but the question is, did he commit suicide or is he really still out there? Uh, In this case, again, the, the question is not did he do it, but where is he? But in this case, you want to know um, why do we care? And of course, that's the Mary Ellen part of this. Right, right. And uh, also, in a sense, how how could he stay away so long? And it became sort of a chase film, in a sense. So every story, even though it's all fugitive stories, even fugitive stories have a different question that you need to answer and a, a different heart connection to the story. So once you've sort of defined those two questions, then you tell the story, in a sense, the same way I think you always do, particularly with you know interviews. The form is the same. But... I think it's formulating the two questions for me is what determines how you end up telling the story. Huh. 
I'm curious about how this particular case came onto your radar and how it ended up being an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I mean, this is one of the great moments of, of this episode. I love it. Is like I was watching this and I was thinking like, oh, this is like a very traditional, almost like America's Most Wanted type case. And then there actually was a little crossover in the story <laughs> with America's right. Most Wanted. So how did this one land on your radar? Well, I think, you know, as all of our stories, we have this crack team of researchers and they really are remarkable in terms hmm. of. I always think there's sort of like an alchemy that these people have a certain trick that they do. But the original, I think originally it came across our desk, the hook being, here's a guy who went from death row to shopping at a mall really yes. within a year or so. It wasn't like it was 20 years. It was like a year between the Supreme Court decision and the time he left. So when you hear that, you go, oh, my God, which, of course, is fascinating and horrible but of course, it's not enough to do a whole film about. It's a hook. It's a one-liner, you know. So then we, of course, had to figure out, well, what is the story here? And then we did the research and just, you know, discovered not only is it just horrible how this happened, but then you you reach out and you find out about Mary Ellen and you talk to all these police officers who over the years are still just drives them crazy that this guy is still out there. Hmm. Not only Siler, because Siler came onto the case, Dave Siler, who's the marshal, uh, he came out to the case relatively recently, but then you have John Arcudi, who's been, you know, this has been digging at him since the 90s. And, you know, you have this passionate police, you have this tragic victim, this 14-year-old girl and the family, you know, so it just all those pieces fit together. And we said, well, we just have to do this story. One of the things I love about Siler in his interviews is that he clearly sees the same stakes that the viewer sees. I mean, we're introduced to Myrtle, Mary Ellen's sister, who makes it incredibly clear that this family was forever scarred by this murder and mm. that things have never been the same. And it was so tragic because it was preventable, first of all. And second of all, it was just such a normal evening in the rhythm of their lives, you know, going to one laundromat, walking to get change at a different laundromat right near their grandmother's house, doing the family's laundry, a very kind of cozy, familiar activity. And her sister was killed so brutally. And Siler gets it. It's not competitive for him. It's not just like, I got to get the bad guy. He's mm. really harmed by this, even though he's really new to the case. Yeah, it, it sort of offends him deeply. Yeah. You know, it's not only his job to catch bad guys, but there's something about this one. And just the fact that this guy went from, literally went from death row to shopping, kills this girl, and he's been living his life ever since. And the, not only, obviously, Mary Ellen is no longer with us, but the whole family was torn apart. It really gets to him. There's a sort of indignation with him. But I think, again, all these guys, you know, you, I was watching, you know, I rewatched it the other day. And all of these police guys just have this look on their face like this is just horrible. And yes, it's been 40, whatever it is, 50 years, but this is wrong. This is just fundamentally wrong. And we yeah. have to write this before he dies. He meaning Lester. Tell me a little bit about Myrtle, what it was like to interview her, whether or not you had any contact with other members of the family. It, it really is a beautiful illustration about how you know, I think that sometimes we like to think because it's too difficult to contemplate that a family can move on, can can get over or in some way feel healed after something like this. But she really is the personification of the fact that that is not really true when someone is taken away violently. What can you tell me about her and the family? 
Yeah, there there was no more family left other than Myrtle. I mean, oh. other than the distant cousins and things like that. But all of the siblings have passed away. Myrtle has, has become the spokesperson for the story. And, you know, we're not the only one who have done this story. We're not the only ones who have done interviews with her. Uh, and I just, she's tired of it. And I understand, but God love her. She... She she did it for us because she wants to catch this guy. Like she says at the end of the movie, I I want this guy caught. And she will do what she has to do to, to make that happen. Um, she was older. She was almost 19, I think, when this happened. So she wasn't that close to uh, Mary Ellen as, as sisters. Um, but obviously it's her sister. And she remembers how, how it tore her mother apart. And also Brenda, who's the sister who... Mary Ellen was with that night. Hmm. Brenda had a very hard time and died young and suffered sort of psychological scars from this event, as you can imagine. I can't imagine. I can't. Yeah. yeah. And that, that recreation, honestly, it was done so beautifully. It's so hard, I know, when you're doing a story like this to really capture kind of the the desolation, the sadness, the tragedy, the violence in a recreation. But I do think that that laundromat scene, the way it was filmed, the way it was put together, it, it did have that sort of vintage, evocative feeling. And Brenda being left behind physically in the laundromat, it just it just really rung true to how she must have felt after this crime was committed, right? I think so. And and hats off to Clay Jeter, by the way, who directed all that stuff. Um, yeah, we really were trying to evoke that sense of loneliness and time period, but also that sense of loneliness. And, you know, there was these two little girls who were out late at night at the laundromat. There was nobody else around. It was definitely that trying to evoke that sense of like you're saying, the sort of isolation, desolation, and a sense that something bad's going to happen. Yeah. So I do want to talk about this period in time. You mentioned Lester's being moved from, you know, death row to general population. This was the result of a course correction in the criminal justice system nationwide. In 1972, the Supreme Court banned the death penalty. It was it was temporary. Uh, there was also this kind of overcorrection in criminal justice where, you know, even someone like me who very much believes in prison programming and criminal justice reform and all that stuff, there was this period of, of drastic overcorrection that led to Lester being at a shopping mall, unsupervised. Can you just talk about that period in time, notably the death penalty being overturned? What was happening then? Yeah, I'm obviously not a lawyer, never played one on television, but my understanding is that the Supreme Court basically said that every state has different rules and ways of enacting the death penalty. And the Supreme Court said, Look, this is crazy. We can't we can't have this. It's too, you know, we need to find one way to do this or find a, a at least a, a system across the nation to deal with executions. The DA calls it capricious. That was the word I think yeah. that was used. So the death penalty came off the table and in Ohio they said fine, okay. So now we're going to take we're basically going to abandon death row, put all the death row inmates in general population and Lester was basically given life with the possibility of parole because in Ohio, they didn't have life without the possibility of parole. Interesting. Yeah. So he's now in general population. And as part of the reformation period in prisons, they were trying to reform prisons. But interestingly, in this case in Ohio, they made this honor program where if prisoners were good, they would give them perks. Um, and at first I thought it was about sort of helping reform these, you know, 
career criminals and, and all the rest of it. It's not quite that way. It, it was a way to control the population, particularly the long-term guys. They figured, look, you guys are going to be in there for the next 40 years. If you want to survive this in any way that, you know, that's okay, follow the rules and we'll give you perks. It wasn't so much trying to teach these guys how to get out. It was teaching them how to stay in. You know, if you're going to be here this long, this is the way we'll control the population. So they had this honor program, and a lot of the people on the honor program were long-term guys. On paper, not not a terrible idea, right? I mean, right. it makes sense, but perhaps people were eligible for this program that shouldn't have been. Well, exactly. And, you know, they would start doing things like sending the guys to the baseball games and to the county fairs and to go shopping. I mean, okay, maybe, maybe it's not a bad idea, but you probably want to have guards with these guys. You know, I mean, that to me is the, is the, (laughs) is the craziness of this. It wasn't like each had two guards with him or that they were wearing prison suits or something. These guys were basically going there, you know, they dropped off at 1030 and have a good time shopping and we'll see you at two. And interestingly, many of these guys came back. Yeah. This, I mean, this wasn't a prison break. This was literally, a, he was able to just walk away from a mall. Exactly. And, you know, given that he was then able to get to a bus and all the things that we know happened afterward. Right. Did somebody help him get away from that mall? Do you think there was somebody waiting with a car? Yeah, I think so. I think that's pretty clear that, um, I mean, the bus came weeks later uh, out of Michigan, but to yeah. leave the mall, he he wasn't hit. Nobody saw him hitchhiking you know, he didn't call a cab. So pretty clearly a family member probably picked him up. It was prearranged that at a certain time he would meet him at a certain place and off they went. Were there any witnesses at the mall? I don't think they found anybody who remembers seeing him or saw anything weird. Again, you know, it's Christmas time and uh, he's in civilian clothes. So why would anybody think otherwise? It's really interesting. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I, it's just fascinating to me that this serial sex offender, confessed murderer of a child, was qualified for this honor program. It almost feels like there were just cracks. That, that's kind of how it feels to me. Yeah. It's also, you know, I was thinking about it. It was only a year between the time the Supreme Court essentially abandoned the death penalty to the time he gets to escape. So. I would think if this was 20 years, you'd say, okay, the guy, you know, has done a good job, whatever it is. He's been a good inmate. And 20 years later, they're going to give him a perk to let him go shopping. This is a year or so. So the sense I have is that there was somebody or something behind the scenes that expedited his being put on this honor program. Um, There's a lot of speculation when you talk to people about this story that Mose, who's his, who's Lester's father, mm-hmm. was uh, a prominent minister, businessman in the Mansfield area, and was connected. He was actually working as a minister in the prison system. Supposedly, he was good friends with Bennett Cooper. Bennett Cooper was the head of the uh, Department of Corrections for the oh. state at the time. Whether it's conspiracy theory or true, I don't know. But there's certainly the speculation that somehow maybe Mose was able to talk to Bennett who was then able to get Lester put on this honor program maybe sooner than other people. And, you know, it might be sort of a backdoor into explaining how this whole thing happened. Well, it makes sense to me. It also makes sense to me why we wouldn't know that, because who would admit that afterwards, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Mose went, you know, and later on they talked with Mose and they definitely had the sense that Mose knew 
that Lester was alive and where Lester is. So who knows? I mean, it's, it, it helps explain some things. Let me put mm-hmm. it that way. Whether it's true, I, I don't know. I mean, it is very clear that he couldn't have and didn't do this alone. He crossed several states. He's been traced to Michigan, California, Alabama. There have to be a lot of people looking the other way along the way. We know we know his father um, and, of course, his cousin-in-law, Kay Banks, who was his pen pal in prison, looked the other way. In her case, Kay, who he stayed with in L.A., it's clear that he didn't seem like a changed man to her, that she felt intimidated by him, right? Right, exactly. That was the sense. Was I mean, I think at first they were pen pals and they sort of knew each other before uh, he went to prison so that there's a sort of familial bond. But at some point, uh, I think they became lovers. He wasn't living with her full time, but he spent a lot of time there. I, I'm pretty sure they they were lovers at one point. Uh, and then she started becoming afraid of him. Mm. And ultimately, I thought brilliantly, figured out a way to get rid of it by just saying, oh, yeah, the FBI called about you today. Yeah. And off you went. Yeah. How do you make sense of all this loyalty that he was able to maintain despite being a frightening guy from all of these family members, probably some friends, everybody who kind of helped him keep the secret and helped him stay on the run? Yeah, I don't know. It's I mean, I've never been in that position, so I I couldn't imagine doing it that way. I mean, it might be that he's convinced them that he didn't really do it, that it was a setup job. Uh, It could be, you know, I've changed. Uh, It's I don't know. I mean, as a family member, too, you wonder, like, for example, you know, if my son, <laughs> you don't know my son, but I can't imagine this, but if somehow my son committed a horrible crime, I, you know, what would I do? You know, would I protect him somehow or would I just say, dude, you know, you you have to pay the price? I don't know. I mean, I, I can't, you know, it's hard to imagine, but I guess family, you know, blood is thicker than water kind of thing. And I guess you do what you have to do to protect a family. I think that there's also a possibility that people who loved and were close to him maybe didn't believe that he did what they said he did, right? I mean, that's the only way that you can kind of wrap your head around it. I, I guess so. But at the same time, he did confess twice. He had a, this is the third sexual assault that he was connected with, one of which he was, you know, he was convicted of when he was 16, you know, so it's not like it came out of nowhere, so if you, I, I would think if you really had any sense of a rational way of approaching this, you would think that he did it. But again, you know, he's a charming guy and maybe he just convinced people otherwise. I'm interested in the uptick in visitors that mm. Eubanks had in prison. David Seiler says that in the weeks leading up to him walking away uh, at the mall, there, there was this like larger number of visitors who came to see him. Do we have any idea who these people were? We do know who they are. Uh, I can't tell you because, <laughs> because the only because it, I, I wish it was more interesting. It's just legally we have to be careful. I see. Because it implies things. But um, it was mostly, it wasn't a lot of family members who came to visit. It was one or two particular family members who came more often as the time approached. And that's another reason why I think the police feel that this was clearly a setup job, that the family was involved and they were there and they, you know, it was a plan. Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that situation with the warrant and the FBI and the lost warrant? Can you just like recap and then clarify that for me? Sure. Um, by the way, this is, you know, the nine lives of Lester Eubanks, right? This is just another one of these things that made this possible. When he walked away, I don't want to say he escaped. When he walked away, there was issued a county warrant for his 
re-arrest, the state warrant, and then the FBI did a nationwide warrant. And back in the day, if you you know anybody who watches true crime shows knows about NCIC, mm-hmm. which is the national database, which actually existed back in the in the sixties and seventies, which I didn't realize, but they did. By NCIC, you mean the National Crime Information Center, right? right? It's a it's a nationwide database, basically run by the FBI. So there were these three different kinds of warrants that if anybody, if he basically came across the police, pulled him over or something, ran his name, they would have realized that there was a warrant out and they would have arrested him. Pretty standard. We've all heard that story before. So um, when he walks away and these warrants were there, but then at some point in the late 70s, so after a couple of years of him being gone, these warrants were pulled. Um, I think the federal warrant was pulled in 1981, but this, the state warrant was pulled sooner. So all of a sudden, if he had been pulled over for a traffic stop or obviously was got in trouble for something else, they would have run his name through the nationwide system and his name wouldn't have come up because the warrants had disappeared. Right. So it made his life obviously a lot easier as a fugitive when you're not in the system. It also makes it easier when you're probably lying about your name, right? Exactly. He had aliases. He had Victor Young was the name, but he also had a few other aliases. But Victor Young is the one that we know about when he was in L.A. And he didn't, uh, he knew enough, not, you know, his fingerprints obviously were on record because of the crime. Um, And he knew enough not to do anything that would require his fingerprints, which I guess, you know, certainly getting arrested, but also like driver's licenses and things like that, you might get fingerprinted. That's why it was important that we pointed out that he used a uh, hunting license as his ID, which I guess back then you could do, which didn't require fingerprints. So he knew not to do things that required a fingerprint, hmm. which was the only last thing that, you know, is was it still in the system. If they had run his fingerprint, they, they would have found out that he was wanted. We should also note, though, that, you know, before the advent of the Internet and high speed networks, even those matches were slow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, I hate to go back to the Ted Bundy case, but this is how like people were able to commit crimes, get caught in other states doing other things. And then nobody made the connection because there wasn't an unsolved mysteries. There wasn't the Internet, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, those are the old computers with the big tape drives. And, yes. you know, it's all that stuff. And it, it obviously wasn't instantaneous. It would take a while to run these things. So unless he was arrested, he probably would never have been caught, you know, through that system. Exactly. Tell me some more about the last credible lead to Lester Eubanks' whereabouts. It's Alabama, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, It's the story that Mike Vinson, who's the um, state trooper, uh, Mose was talking to somebody who was working at a teen center, kind of a community center teen center in Alabama. Uh, they ran the phone number, found out where this place was. They contacted the Alabama State Police. They went and investigated, found out there was a guy working at this thing as a as a maintenance man who he looked like Lester, but nobody, when they showed him pictures of Lester, nobody said, oh, yeah, that's the guy. Mm. So we aren't convinced it was Lester, but he, you know, he's a guy who didn't, his social security number came up as bogus. He didn't have a driver's license. So all those other elements make you think that, boy, it sure sounds like it could be Lester. And again, this brings back Mose. Mose, the father, could have easily have contacted Lester because the cops went to talk to Mose and Mose could have said, hey, you know, the cops are here. They're back on your trail. You may want to move on because 
by the time the Alabama police went to investigate, he had left about a month before. Wow. You know, again, is it coincidental? Probably not. The suspicion is that Mose gave him the heads up that the cops may be on their way. Mose is such a frustrating character to me, again, because if Lester Eubanks were a different kind of criminal, like if he were a jewel thief or something, you'd be like, wow, this is like a heist film with this, <laughs> like, you know, preacher dad who's helping his son stay on the run. But this is a sexual predator and a killer. And you know, the evidence points to him being an active participant mm-hmm. in Lester's being on the run, not a passive one, like I know my son is alive and somewhere, but actively involved. And he says, well, you know, he says, there's nothing I could, nothing anyone can do to bring that, that girl back. And uh, I simply asked him the question. I'm like, well, do you think that justice was done in this case with your, with your son? And he specifically, he looked at me and he says, people change and, and go on and start new lives. And he says, and I pray for Lester every day. And he says, that's all I'm going to say about Lester. We had a little bit of more conversation. And then my partner and I, we kind of looked at each other. And we said, well, he knows exactly where Lester's at. Uh, there's no you know, proof of it. They can't, you know, otherwise they probably would arrest him. There's no proof that Mose was involved. But it sure seems like it just again and again, the indication is that Mose helped Lester stay around. So also Lester wasn't making a lot of money. I mean, he was working either maybe as a house painter or maybe he was working as a maintenance man sort of a thing. And he was always on the run, which can get expensive. So the sense is that somebody must have been helping him. Siler talks about making sure that Lester got onto this like 15 most wanted lists. And I've always been curious about, you know, in your experience, does being on a list like that really help elevate the urgency of trying to find someone? I think the 15 Most Wanted helps mostly from the marshals side of things, because now you can put a reward out. It gives the marshals a little more funding. It, it, it brings that case into prominence. So I think it helps Siler and his team a little more than a, just a typical fugitive story. I don't know that the public knows about the story anymore because of that. I mean, I've never personally known much about the 15 Most Wanted, frankly, or the FBI's 10 Most Wanted you know, it's not something I come across every day. So I don't know if the 15 Most Wanted matters to the public, but I think it definitely helped Siler in terms of funding and, and exposure and just making a point to say this guy needs to be caught. Bob, clearly you don't visit your local post office very I, often. Apparently, I, exactly. <laughs> well, I always check to see if I'm on it. But yes. after that, you know, um, I don't know. Is the 15 most wanted even at the post office? No, the 10, though, is. And it's the always surprising is, yeah. to me. I live in a very small town and I, you know, just will go down very occasionally to, like, mail a package or return something, you know, to a company that sent me something. or, And, you know, that list is it's there in every post office. And it is a it's an attraction that I would <laughs> suggest if, if for no other reason than curiosity people check out because you never know, right? I mean, that's why it's in the post office. That's why it's posted. Yeah. It's funny. I, I was in the post office the other day and I don't remember seeing it. I have to make sure they have it. Take a look around. Ask too if you can see it if it's not prominent. Yes. I'm curious, Bob, in, in the case we talked about last time, the death in Oslo case, you know, the journalist and, and you yourself told me that the only way potentially to find out who this unidentified woman was is if somebody recognizes her by autopsy photos and police sketches. In Lester's case, we do have this age progression image of him. Do you think this is the best shot for getting tips that lead to his capture? I, I would think so. This is, you know, putting it out to 
obviously millions of Netflix viewers. And the, the age progression is probably pretty good because we're starting from a, a grown man's image versus, you know, sometimes you're working from a child or an infant. So I think this image is probably pretty close. And hopefully the idea is somebody probably here in the States recognizes and says, oh yeah, that's the my next door neighbor. That's the guy who, you know, maybe still be working as a maintenance man or something like that. Uh, so I would think this is, I don't want to say it's the best shot, but I know that Dave Siler is really excited about this broadcast so that he can get some tips and he's ready to take on the tips and, and follow up. I am too. And I'm also very curious about, as I talked about with my husband, Kevin, the person whose job it will be potentially to determine whether or not a painting was painted by Lester Eubanks. Mm. I'm assuming they have some sort of analyst, right? That can look at the style of something and, and, and guess within a probability range that it could be a Lester Eubanks original. I don't know. That's actually a really interesting question. Um, he certainly has a certain style. He did at least. I don't know if it's changed. I would think it would. Um, I don't know about the artwork as a clue, other than to say that this guy looks like Lester and he's a painter sooner than this painting looks like it could be a Eubanks and track it that way. But I, I don't know. Right. Actually. So if you walk into a gallery and you see a man with a terrible scar on his arm and he looks like the age progression photo, right. and he happens maybe to be pay attention to that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and see how he signs his name, you know. Bob, is there a part of the Lester Eubanks story that didn't make it into the episode that you kind of wish had made it into the final cut? There's a scene at the graveyard where uh, Myrtle comes to see the headstone of Mary Allen. And it turns out that was the first time she had seen the headstone because it was put in very recently. For all these years, Mary Allen didn't have a headstone. And uh, the local cemetery put together funds and they put together this headstone. And that was a moment that we filmed with Myrtle coming to the headstone for the first time. And, and of course we're filming it thinking it might be a very dramatic moment and it turned out not to be so, but I still like the idea that the community still remembers Mary Ellen and feels badly for the family. And it was nice to see Mary Ellen remembered that way. And I, and I think, uh, Mm. I think Myrtle really appreciated that as well. Bob, what hope do you have that Lester will be found alive as a result of this episode of Unsolved Mysteries? I'm very hopeful. I, I think this is really a great chance for the public to say, oh, my God, I think I know that guy. And according to Siler, he thinks that Lester's still alive. Uh, I talked with Dave the other day, and he said, because I said to him, like, you know, I would think the family would be thrilled if you guys were still running in circles looking for Lester. You know, and he said, well, the family has been affected by this, too. I mean, the Eubanks family, this has not been easy on them because the police are constantly questioning them. And so that there's a certain amount of pressure put on the family as well. And so he feels that if Lester has passed away, that somebody from the family would let the marshals know to say, look, here's proof that he's passed away. Give it up. Leave us alone. Let's just move on. Well, I think it's going to be solved. <laughs> I really do. I mean, of all the episodes we've talked about, this one to me seems like someone is just going to see this. Everybody has Netflix, right? Someone's going to see this photo and say, that's my neighbor. It's my painter neighbor over there. Yeah. Go get him. Yeah, exactly. I think so, too. I think it's a really, really good chance. Well, Bob Wise, it's always a pleasure to talk to you about these episodes. I hope we get the chance to talk again. Thank you so much for breaking this one down with me. It's been really fun. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It's been fun. We have reached the end of this week's episode. Many thanks again to our guest, Robert Wise. 
Fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. If you or someone you know has information on the whereabouts of Lester Eubanks, go to unsolved.com to share your story or to learn more about the hundreds of other mysteries covered by the series. For more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2, Episode 4, Tsunami Spirits. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.